Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. The Tanya is based on a verse in Deuteronomy that Moshe says to the entire Jewish people right before he passes away that to lead a Jewish life, to observe the Torah, and to do the mitzvot is something that's very near and dear to each and every Jew. All Jews. Hashem is not asking from us to do the impossible. Hashem is asking for us to do something that's very close to our heart, to think like a Jew, speak like a Jew, act like a Jew, and to do it with feeling, with with love. And uh, the obvious question is, that this doesn't seem, to, doesn't seem to resonate with our reality, because our reality is we know how difficult it is to lead a Jewish life, to occupy ourselves, engage in Torah, mitzvah, to lead a wholesome life. It's very, very difficult. How can Moshe say, and the Torah is eternal, the Torah speaks to each, to each and every Jew. So first he explained that a person has the ability to create awareness, to focus your mind, concentrate your mind, and to contemplate and to meditate and to focus and to concentrate on godliness. And once you focus your mind on godliness, then you can make a decision that you want to live your life accordingly and you want to lead a godly life. So this is something that's near and dear to each and every Jew because every one of us has the capacity, even those of us who don't have the capacity for intense, dramatic emotions. But nevertheless, we do have the capacity to concentrate our mind and to make a decision accordingly, to live our life, to choose to live a godly life, to consistently act and behave and lead a Jewish life consistently. Unless, if a person is addicted, if a person is no longer in control, no longer in control of his heart, a person is addicted and he lost control, then his mind doesn't have the strength to be able to overcome his natural inclination or natural impulse. So all the reasoning and all the arguments and all the understanding in the world will not help you overcome your impulse. Under normal, ordinary circumstances of a person who's not addicted, so he's, he's, in, he's in control. He could, you could control your heart. Your mind over matter. Your mind could control your heart. But a person who has allowed himself and just fallen and slipped into addiction, he's no longer in control. The mind has no power over it. So in this case, in order to crack through the shell, to crack through the arrogance that's covering up on, on the soul, person also needs to shuva. A person has to, um, in order to overcome his arrogance, a person has to be brokenhearted. When a person is brokenhearted, it humanizes you. It cuts through, it cracks the shell, and it reaches and allows you to access your neshama. Well, he becomes more away, depersonalizes, they call it, in a way. When a person, when a person, a person can deal with being brokenhearted, so he just numbs out. Well, that's one of the causes of addictions also. A person 
it just goes so deep and so so on the surface you just um, but when a person is broken hearted you can feel you're broken hearted then it cracks through all it cracks through the shell it cracks through the, the and it allows you to be human once again to be humane to be loving when a person it's a defensive mechanism right a person just numbs out because he can't deal with it and the pain is so acute most addictions really are because a person is in terrible spiritual pain and anguish. Usually people who are addicted actually are very spiritually sensitive and very spiritual souls and they can't, they're in just such pain that they can't deal with reality and can't deal with the challenge and they just numb out. And, um, but once you're able to feel the anguish and you're able to feel that brokenheartedness, it cuts through, it slices through the shell and then you're able to once again to feel your soul and you feel human and humane and you feel love, love the ability to love and to be loved. And then, um, then you can once again function as a normal human being, which is mind over matter. Then your mind has, has uh, the ability to overcome. They actually did a study, actually... What Alter Rebbe writes in Tanya, this was corroborated today with the MRIs. They actually did a study, the brains of addicts. And they said the brains of an addict, that part of the brain that really makes judgment and you know, can make a rational judgment, a decision, is, is like quiet, it's like powerless. And it takes, they say it takes an addict a minimum of 90 days when he's stopped his addiction for 90 days, that's when there's signs of life again in that part of the brain where the person, the rational mind, could once again function. If he's faced with a challenge, he has the ability to overcome it. Um, but if a person just slips into addiction, it's a very, very difficult thing. Then the normal function of the brain where God created us, that mind over matter, ceases to function properly. It's like something is broken inside and doesn't work properly. And teshuva, when a person is brokenhearted and slices through, cracks the arrogance and the shell of indifference, of, of, of uh, numbness, and suddenly you feel again and you, you, you're in touch again with that deep place inside of you, your soul, then once again, you can once again function as a human being. But then you have another scenario. You have many people simply don't have the mind. They don't have the ability to create an awareness. God didn't create them with a brain. Even if God created them with a brain, they don't have the zitz flesh <laughs> to sit and meditate and to focus and to concentrate and to create an awareness and an appreciation and a, an understanding and a deep understanding and a penetrating understanding. They simply don't have that capacity. And, but the Torah is eternal. The Torah is speaking to each and every Jew. The code of Jewish law doesn't only apply to the righteous people, to the special people. It doesn't only apply to people who have brains, who have the zitzflesh to spend time and study and learn and, and, and contemplate and meditate and focus and concentrate. Um, so how can the Torah say that to be Jewish is something that's near and dear to each and every Jew? And he explained in the last two chapters, the explanation is because each and every Jew has... What makes us Jewish is we have a Jewish soul. What's unique about the Jewish soul? The Jewish soul has the ability of martyrdom. The Jewish soul has the ability to willingness to sacrifice our life, to make the ultimate sacrifice. When push comes to shove, if God forbid you were forced to make a choice, a decision, am I a Jew or to totally disconnect yourself from God, to bow down to the idol? 
without any hesitation, without even any thought process. You don't even have to think about it. It's not even an option. You simply have no choice. A Jew, at that moment, the core, the essence of each and every Jew, the divine spark, the pintaliyid that's found in each and every Jew just emerges and surfaces. And at that point, you don't even have a choice. Like something takes over. There's a part within you that has a life of its own. It may be asleep, it may be dormant throughout your life, but in the moment of truth, it comes roaring back to life and it slices through everything. Even a person who's been addicted, a person who hasn't thought about Hashem in 40 years, a person who hasn't been in the synagogue for 40 years. You know, you've lived a lifestyle, totally coarse, materialistic lifestyle, the exact opposite, the antithesis of everything that's godly and holy and moral and ethical and decent. And yet, at that moment of truth, you're ready to make the ultimate sacrifice. It's like this soul takes over. It takes over your entire being. And at that moment, the only thing you care about is godliness. And everything that meant everything to you for the last 40 years, the lifestyle that you lived, and everything that you've suddenly melts away as if it never existed. It simply has means to reduce to, to rendered meaningless. And the only thing that matters to you is godliness. And you'd rather give up your life than bowing down for the idol and then publicly denying your Jewishness. So, so there is a life force within us that has a life of its own. That's the Jewish soul. That's the ability of martyrdom. Not because we are looking to give up our life. We love life. You have to violate the entire 613 mitzvot with your three cardinal exceptions just to sustain life even for another moment. Life is sacred. Life is holy. We love life. We embrace life. But because it like takes over. It's not an option for a Jew to be disconnected from God. It's simply not an option. So obviously, our relationship to Hashem, our relationship to God is so deep-rooted. It touches our very core and essence of our being. And therefore, we cannot, we cannot be disconnected from God. That's what we finished learning last, in the last chapter, two weeks ago. But this begs the question, that's all fine and well in relationship to idolatry. Yes, when push comes to shove, someone holds a gun to your head, are you going to bow down to the idol or not? Every Jew, most Jews, 99% of Jews would rather give up their lives and God forbid deny their Jewishness, deny their relationship with Hashem simply takes over as a life of its own and it permeates the entire being. So much so you won't even bow down. Externally, superficially you won't even bow down to the eye. But how does that help you in relationship to all other the other 611 bits? Just because I won't bow down to an idol when push comes to shove most of us go through life, thank God we never have to make that choice. No one's holding any guns to our head. So how does that help you in relationship in regards to keeping all the mitzvah? How can the Torah say that to be Jewish and to lead a Jewish lifestyle, to lead a wholesome life, and to think like a Jew, and to speak like a Jew, and to act like a Jew on a daily basis, 24-7, is something very dear and near to every Jew living in the world in the year 2007. Why? Because deep down, we have the pintaliyid, we have that readiness and that willingness and that ability to martyr ourselves, which may be asleep and may be dormant. But in the moment of truth, it will emerge, yes. But until that moment of truth, it's asleep and it's dormant. So how does that affect us? How does that help us to keep the Torah in the mitzvot? And as a result, the Torah states that to be Jewish is something that's very close and dear to us and close to our hearts. Not only could we lead a Jewish lifestyle, but we can do it with love and feeling and passion. So that's the question that the Rebbe is going to address starting in chapter 20. On the bottom of page 272.
It is well known that the positive commandment to believe in God's unity and the admonition concerning idolatry, which form the first two commandments in the Decalogue, I am God and you shall have no other gods, comprise the entire Torah. For the commandment, I am God, contains all the 248 positive precepts, while the commandment, you shall have no other gods, contains all the 365 prohibitive commandments. That is why we heard only these two commandments, I am, and you shall not have, directly from God, while the other eight commandments were transmitted by Moses, as our sages have said, for they are the sum total of the whole Torah. The very first thing we teach our child when he starts speaking, the very first words on his lips are Torah, Siva, Lano, Maisha, Mayrasha, Kilis, Yaakov, the Torah, that Maisha commanded us and Moses commanded us is an inheritance to the entire congregation of Jacob. The Talmud says that Torah is a numerical value, has a numerical value, every letter in the Hebrew language has a numerical value. So Torah, the Tav is 400, the Reish is 200, the Vav is 6, the He is 5, that's 611. So 611 mitzvot were taught through Moshe. How many mitzvot are there? 613. Because the first two commandments we heard directly from God, the Ten Commandments. But then, after each commandment, the Jewish people expired in ecstasy. They couldn't handle it. They couldn't take it. It was so intense. It was so powerful. They pleaded with Moshe, please, ask Hashem not to speak to us directly. We can't take it. You speak to us. And Hashem agreed. Moshe was upset at the request, but Hashem agreed. And all the other eight commandments, God spoke through the throat of Moshe. They heard the voice of Moshe through the throat of Moshe. It was really it was God speaking through Moshe. But it was something that's, that's more humanly acceptable and um, they could handle that. So the first two commandments they heard from God Almighty Himself. Why these two commandments? Because these two commandments are general commandments. The mitzvot are divided into two categories, the do's and the don'ts, the active, and, the, and those mitzvot that you refrain from doing, the prohibitions, the transgressions, the 248 positive commandments, active commandments, and the 365 don'ts, things that we refrain from, not eating not to eat non-kosher, etc. So the fir- very first two commandments include within them, they're not just the, the headings, but they also include within them all of them. It's, the first commandment is to believe in the unity of God. I am God who took you out of Egypt. To believe in the unity of God. And the existence and the unity of God. And that includes all the positive commandments and the the second commandment, don't worship idols, includes all the 365 don'ts, the prohibitions. The question is, what's the connection? Why are these two mitzvot, how every time you fulfill a positive commandment, you're fulfilling the mitzvah of believing in God, and every time you violate or transgress a prohibition, it's as if you're worshiping idols. What's the connection? You're violating the unity of God. But every time I, do, I violate a, a prohibition, it's as if I'm worshipping idols. If it's a very rare thing. The Talmud says it's as if you worship idols. If a person loses his temper, it's as if you worship idols. A person who's mean, who's not generous, who's not giving, who's not charitable, is, it's, it's the equivalent of worshipping idols. A person who's arrogant is the equivalent of worshipping idols. I, idolatry is the, most power, is the most severe sin of all. 
Why, how can we say that every time you violate any prohibition, it's the equivalent of worshipping idols? And every time you fulfill any mitzvah, it's the opposite of worshipping idols. Every time you affirm the unity of God, the belief in the existence of God, and the unity of God, it's the opposite of worshipping idols. You're worshipping God. Instead of worshipping idols. Every time you worship an idol, you're denying the unity of God. So how can you say that every time you do a positive mitzvah, minor, major, minor mitzvah, you, you are fulfilling the mitzvah of the, uni- of the unity of God, belief affirming the belief in God, and every time you transgress or you violate a prohibition, even a minor prohibition, it's as if, it's as if you worship idols. What's the connection? So he said, this needs a very good explanation. So the explanation is, in order to elucidate this matter clearly, in order to elucidate this matter clearly, we must first briefly speak of the idea and the essence of the unity of God, who is called one and unique. That is, we must understand the essential meaning of this phrase, which lends itself to various interpretations. There is only one God, one creator, that he is one being, not a compound of various powers, and so on. When we say there's a mitzvah to believe in the unity of God, what does that mean exactly? Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem God is one. What does that mean? What do you mean, God is one? It can mean a few things, several things. Basic meaning, simple meaning. Obvious meaning is that God is one. There's only one God. And there are two gods, monotheism. We believe that God is one. And not only God is one, there's no other God, there's no other power. God is the only power. God runs this world. Not only there's one God and not two gods. Not only that God creates the world, but God runs this world. He is the only power. That's the meaning of God is one. Just like we have one soul, the body has one soul. And everything that happens in the body is run by the soul. The body doesn't lift a pinky without the soul. The body without the soul is a corpse, which quickly disintegrates. What is the body? The body is the soul. The soul moves the body, everything movement of the body, it's this, the, the soul. So there's one soul, and the soul is in total in control of the body. It runs the body. We only see the body, but we know that there's a soul that's moving, the energy, the life force that's moving the body. It's not the body. Of course you see the body, but what's, what's the body? The body is just, it's the life force, the energy, the soul that we can never have seen and never heard and never touched and never tasted and never smelled, but that is, that is our reality. So that's a simple, obvious meaning of the belief in one God. The belief in monotheism is when Abraham was three years old, he came out of the cave and he started wondering, his mind started wondering and wandering around and thinking you know, what makes he came out at night and he saw the stars and the moon. He bowed down to the moon and then at dawn he saw the moon disappear and the sun come out, comes out. So he bowed down to the sun. Then he realized Neither the sun is God, nor the moon is God. That God, there's a God. God is the soul of the universe. And God creates everything, and God runs everything. And is in command and control of the entire world. No one lifts a pinky without God. God is a soul. Even though we've never seen God, and we've never heard God, and we've never touched God. But nevertheless, what we see, we just see the body. Just like we know from our own personal experience that the body is not the body. The body is a corpse. What's the body? It's the soul. It's the life force within us. The energy within us. That's what a person yearns for in life, the energy, the life force, the soul within us. 
so too we realize that the world also has a soul. The world is a body. While the scientists may be busy measuring and quantifying the, the, the technical, the mechanical, the body, but you, of course you can't see the soul in, the, in, in a laboratory, but of course, what's the body? The body is nothing without the soul. The, the soul is really what moves and motivates everything. So this is the simple, the obvious meaning, the belief in the existence of God, the belief in the, in the unity of God, that there's one God, and God is in control of this world, and God runs this world, and there's only one power to be in this world. And that's the God we believe in, and that's the God we worship. Then there's a deeper meaning. When we say that God is one. God is one also means, as Maimonides says, that God is not a composite. It's difficult for us to understand God because we can only understand from our own personal experience, our own frame of reference. We use ourselves as a frame of reference. You can only understand from your own personal experience. In our own personal experience, everything in our world, in our conscious world, is a composite. Take intellect. Intellect, the highest level of our conscious, the highest level of man, the highest level of consciousness, of our conscious self. Intellect is a composite. It's made up of you, the knower, the, the brain, the intellectual capacity to understand, and then the object that, that you're learning or studying or becoming aware of. So yes, in your, your intellectual capacity is to unite these three. When you understand something, the knower and the known, and that which you know with, become one. That's the power of intellect. It unifies. But nevertheless, it's made up of three different parts, components. So it's not an absolute unity. You can separate the three. You can have one without the other. You can have the knower, and he goes through life and learns nothing. Then you have the intellect, and then you have the object that, that's known. So it's, it's Im- almost impossible for us. It's very difficult for us to envision an absolute unity. When we know ourselves, that's, that's a lot closer to an absolute unity. When you know yourself, you can't sep- it's very difficult. You can't separate between the knower and the knowing and the knower because it's all three is one you're knowing yourself so that's inseparable so that's, that gives us a, a closer understanding of, of, of a, a total unity but in our regular everyday conscious, conscious awareness it's a composite there, is, there isn't an absolute unity when we say Shema Yisrael Hashem Hashem what we're saying is that God is one it's an absolute unity that God and the knower and the knower and the knowledge and what's known is all three are inseparable. God's knowledge is not like our knowledge, where you can separate the person from the intellect from the knowledge. God and his intellect and his and the knowledge, which is us, he knows us, are all three are inseparable. You can't separate the three. And this is very difficult for us to comprehend. So this is the idea of the unity, unifying God. It's a mitzvah in the Torah to unify God. The mitzvah is to realize that God is an absolute unity. You can't separate. God is not a composite. Like the human personality is made up of intellect, is made up of emotions, and there are different types of intellect. And there's the creative mind, there's the analytical mind, there's the integrative mind, and there's emotions, and different types of emotions, and opposite emotions. There's love, there's attraction, and there's, there's a repulsion, hatred, the opposite of love. Uh, there's awe, there's fear, there's love, and then there's compassion, and different, all different types of emotions. Within a person, we're composite of many different parts, many different components that make up 
an entity, a unified entity. But God is an absolute unity. You can't separate in God and his emotions and his intellect. God is an absolute unity. And so as difficult as it is for us to understand this, but this is belief. This is our belief. We believe that God is one. So we believe that God is an absolute unity, which also affects us personally. It's not just an abstract belief. Because if God is an absolute unity, then we have to leave a life, lead a life accordingly. We have to lead our lives accordingly. Because if God is an absolute unity, then we ourselves also have to become unified. If you're connected to God, you also have to be unified. Meaning, you can't just have an intellectual concept, intellectual knowledge. That intellectual knowledge, that intellectual concept has to change you and affect you. Which is why the Torah is called the Torah. Why is the Torah called the Torah? What does the word Torah mean? Torah comes from the word hara, a lesson, a teaching. Everything in Torah has to translate into a personal lesson. How is this going to affect me? How is this going to change me? How is this going to make me into a better person? That's the difference between Torah and philosophy and physics and, and math and science. Philosophy, physics, math and science is a composite. And you can separate the two. You can separate the person, you can separate the mind, and you can separate the knowledge. A person could learn and be brilliant, and yet it doesn't affect them. They don't become more refined. They don't become a better person. In Torah, there's no such dichotomy, because Torah is, is divine. Torah is God's wisdom. God's wisdom is different than our wisdom. God and His wisdom are inseparable, are an absolute unity. Therefore, every bit of Torah has to also unify us. You can't compartmentalize. You can't just study Torah intellectually. The Torah can't just engage your mind or engage your, your higher levels of consciousness. Or It has to transform, unify the whole person. It has to affect you. Every bit of Torah, every bit of knowledge has to challenge you. At the end of the day, you have to say, so what? So I studied an hour of Torah today. So what? What difference does it make in my life? How is this information, this knowledge that I learned, how is this going to transform me, revolutionize me, inspire me, change me? Otherwise, it's not Torah. Because this is a reflection of God's unity. So when we say that God is one, we're unifying God, it's not just an abstract intellectual concept. It has very real-life implications. If God is one, then it has to also lead you to lead a unified life, which is a Jewish life. A Jewish lifestyle is unified, where your behavior reflects your intellect. There's no dichotomy. There's no separation between the higher and the lower. It's not an intellectual exercise. Studying Torah doesn't become an intellectual exercise. It has to refine you, it has to transform you, and it has to change you and affect you. So every part of you becomes consistent. The idea and the actions are consistent. This is unique to Judaism. This is the seal of Judaism. That there's no dichotomy between the action and, and the learning and the understanding. But then there's a deeper understanding of the unity of God. And this is what Alter Rebbe is, is going to discuss here in the Tanya. That not only there's only one God, not only there's only one power, not only that God is an absolute unity, but that there's only one reality. God is the only thing that exists. Nothing else really exists. It's a powerful state. <laughs> That's hitting home. That's getting very personal. It means I don't exist. <laughs> Nothing really exists. The only thing that's real, that really exists, is God.
Now that, that, that makes you think a moment. It's counterintuitive. <laughs> what do you mean I don't exist? What happens to my good old ego? My good old I? My good old self? What do you mean I doesn't exist? There is no I? And that's what we're saying. No. There is no I. There is no ego. All there is is God. There really is nothing else. Okay, now we got everyone's attention. <laughs> how, how is this possible? We say, Shema Yisrael, listen carefully. And that's why we say you have to really pay attention and really think about it. And that's why we pray every day. Why do you think we pray every day? So long. Take time in the morning to pray. Just to say hello to God. Just to ask for our needs. We don't always have a long laundry list of needs. We could, the prayer could take five minutes. Yet we spend every morning a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour praying. Why are we spending so much time praying? What's it really all about? What's happening in prayer? Because we're praying, we're trying to understand this concept. We're trying to get it, we're trying to grasp it, we're trying to be inspired and moved by this idea that God is the only thing that exists. Hashem Echad. God is the only thing that exists. There's only one existence. There is no other existence. Nothing exists but God. Not us, not angels, nothing. What does that mean? What do you mean we don't exist? I bang my head against the wall. It hurts. It's not an illusion. The Torah said, in the beginning, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. The Torah says this world is not an illusion. The Eastern mystics claim this world is a Maya, it's an illusion. The Torah says, God forbid, this world is not an illusion. The Torah says, God created heaven and earth. It's very real. And if we do Torah, it's meaningful. And if we do the right thing, it's meaningful. And if we do something wrong, it's detrimental and it's harmful. And life is real. This is not a joke. This is re- as real as it gets. So, so this confuses us even further. So our life is real. We do exist or we don't exist. <laughs> our existence has reality or doesn't have reality. Is it meaningful, not meaningful? What? Is it an illusion? Is it for real? What do you mean when you say God is the only one that exists? Nothing else exists besides God. As the Torah says, Ein oid movade, Besides God, nothing else really exists. And this is what Alter Rebbe is going to explain in this chapter. This touches on the deepest concepts of a Hasidic philosophy. The revolution of the Hasidic philosophy which revolutionized our whole understanding of Judaism, the whole underpinning of Judaism. The essence of Judaism is all about understanding what we're about to discuss here in this chapter. The deepest concept, the deepest faith, affirmation of Jewish faith is, what's Jewish faith? Shema Yisrael Hashem Malokeinu Hashem We're ready to give up our lives. What, what is our faith? Our faith is, ultimately, that nothing exists besides God. And that's why we're ready to give up our life for God. Without any hesitation, without deep meditation and contemplation, there's nothing to think, there's nothing to, to meditate, there's nothing to negotiate, there's not even an option, there's, there's no question. Push comes to shove, you're going to bow down to the idol, deny my Jewishness, deny God. It's not even an option because nothing exists but God. What do you mean? I'm going to continue my existence, let me spare my life, let me continue to live. There is no existence but God, nothing, there is nothing else but God. So it's not even an option for a Jew to bow down to the idol, to deny, to deny my Jewishness to deny my relationship with Hashem, no matter what the consequences are, you're ready to make the ultimate sacrifice. It's not even a question. The Jewish soul knows on the deepest level 
that there is nothing but God. Nothing else exists but God. What does that mean? How are we supposed to understand this? This is what we're going to learn now. All believe that he is one alone now, after creation, exactly as he was before the world was created, when he was obviously alone, since nothing else had yet come into being. So too now, after creation, nothing exists apart from him. As it is written in the prayer book, you are he who was before the world was created, and you are he who is since the world was created. If the meaning of this passage were only that God is eternal, without beginning or end, it could have been stated simply, you were before the world was created, by the circumlocution of, you are he who was before the world was created. The original language was, you were before you created the world, and you will remain after the creation of the world. Which literally meant that God is eternal. God precedes the world and God will outlive the world and continue to exist even without the world. God doesn't need the world to exist and God's existence is independent. God is an absolute existence and his existence, his being, exists independently of any other being, not in relationship with any other being and he exists whether we exist or not. He exists. He existed before and he will continue to exist. God is eternal. God transcends the whole frame of time and space, the whole frame of reference. But that's not what he could possibly mean, because then why did he add the words, later on in the later language, he added the words, Atahu, you are he, who was before you created the world, and you are he, who is after he creates the world. So what's he coming to add here? Obviously he's coming to add something. He's coming to tell us something much, much deeper. This emphasis provided by the repeated phrase, you are he who, means... You are exactly the same he before and after creation, without any change. As is written, I, the Lord, have not changed since creation. God is still one, alone, despite the presence of myriad beings, as the Alter Rebbe goes on to explain. So he's saying that God is alone before he created the world, which what he's trying to say here is not only that God is eternal, just like God was alone before he created the world. There was nothing else. Even now, after he created the world, nothing changed. You are the same. You are alone. Just like before creation, nothing existed besides God. After creation, nothing changed. It's not like before there was only God. Now there's God and there's us. And there's a Wall Street Journal. And there's a Wall Street <laughs> Before, there was only God. Now, there's a whole world. So we say in our prayer, no. And this we say right after the Shema. He's explaining the meaning of Shema. When we say Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, we mean to say that God is the only existence. Nothing exists besides God. So therefore, just like God was alone before He created the world, it's not like there's God and there's something else. There is nothing else. Just like God was alone, even now, after He creates the world, He's still alone. And it's an interesting choice of words that he uses. He says, you were alone, actually, before the world was created. He doesn't say before you created the world. It's almost as if the world was created automatically, as if before the world happened to be created. 
and Atuhu, and you are the same once the world was created. What's he cut? Why? Why does he use that language? And it's interesting. the f- The former language was Ato Atshaloi Barasa. You were alone, I think, before you created. It says in the. In the it says uh, that you created, meaning that it was God created the world. That makes more sense. And you are after you created. And the explanation is. In the earlier versions, in the earlier parts of history, when this world was really a spiritual jungle, and even the concept of monotheism was a struggle, even the idea that there's only one God, and the world was hopelessly washed in paganism and idolatry, and even the concept that there's only one God and one power, and God is the omnipotent and the omnipresent one, was a revolutionary concept. And the Jewish people had to break through this concept into human consciousness. That's what he was referring to in the earlier versions. The knowledge that there's one God, there's only one force, there's only one God, there aren't two gods. To deny paganism. And there's only one power to be. That's what he says, you are God who creates the world. God is the creator, God is in charge of the world, God is the soul of the world. Everything that happens in this world comes directly from God, even though... There seems to be many different forces in this world. There's fire and there's water and there's the heat and there's, there's darkness and there's light. But just like in the body, of course, there are many different aspects of your life also. But yet we know that we feel there's only one soul. And the same soul carries within it love and it carries it hatred. It carries within it a compassion. It carries it all different intellect and emotions, practical and spiritual. Yet it all comes from one soul. So too, this understanding that there's only one God and there's one soul. And although there's so many things that are happening in this world simultaneously, just like the human body, there are thousands, tens of thousands, millions of things that happen in the human body simultaneously, but yet they all derive from one soul, one source. So too, there's one God in this world, although there's so many things happening in this world simultaneously and even exact opposites of each other. Yet God is running this entire world simultaneously. Everything that happens in this world, from the amoeba all the way to the greatest and the mightiest, everything is run by God. There's one soul, there's one God. This was a tremendous revolution and the Jewish people had to penetrate human consciousness and had to really introduce this con- reintroduce this concept into, into human consciousness. So therefore that was the earlier version. The discussion of Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokein, Hashem Echad really focused on that concept. That God is the creator and He actively creates the world and He actively constantly creates the world and He actively runs this world and is in charge of this world. And with all the consequences that that implies. If you believe in God, you have to lead a godly life. Just like God is a giver and God is loving, you also have to be giving and loving and kind. You have to emulate God. You have to be a godly person. You have to follow the Torah, do the mitzvot, etc. But then as the world became more refined, as this concept was already broken through, broken in, the world already understood. Most people realize and know there's only one God. Manatheism. So So then we went a step further. Now the emphasis shifted, the focus shifted, not so much Hashem Echad, there's only one God and not two gods, there's only one power, where the God is an absolute unity, as Maimonides explains. But now the focus shifted and the awareness that there's only one reality. God is the only thing that exists. And that's why he says, Atahu, you are the same one. That's why we added the who. And we say, Mishanivra, you are the same one from when the world was, was created, almost as if on its own, as if automatically. 
In other words, creation to God is not something that God had to invest himself in creation, that totally engaged God, occupied God, like an artist. When the artist paints a painting, it occupies him, it engages him. He invests himself in the painting. You can't say the same about God. This is not the essence of God. It's not about creation. Creation is so incidental to God. It's so, so irrelevant to God. It's such a meaningless event to God. It doesn't, not only doesn't it exhaust God, not only doesn't God have to invest himself in creation, it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what God is. So it's not like it, it, it engages God. And he's totally and fully engaged in the act of creation. It's almost as if the act of creation almost happens like an afterthought. Almost automatically. God wanted the world to come into being and it came into being. But it doesn't engage him. It's like a king. A king gives a command. His country to go to war. Does that necessarily... Or he gives a command, this house should be built. Or the country should go to war. He can go back to bed and go to sleep. While the country is at war, he's engaged in other things. Or he gives a command, this home should be built, this bridge should be built. The moment he says it, it happens. It gets done. Is he involved? Does that engage him? Does that occupy him? Does that reflect who the king is? He's totally beyond it. It's one commandment that he gave. It's almost incidental. that He made it a commandment and it happened. It came into being. Multiply that infinite times with God. God made a commandment and he said, the world should come into being. So the world came into being. But it's not that it engages God, it occupies God. It's not like a human being. When we think of something, it occupies our soul. When we're lost in thought in something, you can't think of something else. You're thinking about this thing. It engages your soul. It occupies your soul. But when God thinks and God speaks, it doesn't occupy it. It doesn't engage it. It's totally beyond it. It's almost incidental. And therefore, that, that, that's reflected in the language that he uses in the Hebrew. He doesn't say, you created the world. Creation means you're engaged, you're involved, it occupies you. God is the artist, and he's involved in this creative act, and it engages him, and it's a reflection of who he is, that this world is a reflection of God's creative creativity. That's not how it is. The truth is, from God's point of view, the world is almost on It's almost like Mishanivara The world is almost as an afterthought. It happened to be created. He created it. He said it should happen. It happened. But he's, he's busy with other things. This is not, this is not, this doesn't engage God. It doesn't define him. It doesn't express him. It doesn't, uh, he doesn't invest himself in it. It's so, so superficial to God. And that's what he's saying. That since God transcends creation, and He doesn't really invest Himself in creation, therefore, we can say that just like God was alone before He created the world, so too He's alone even after He created it. Because creation doesn't affect God. It doesn't affect Him. It doesn't matter to Him. It doesn't affect Him. It's not like it changes Him. When the artist makes a painting, it affects Him. When the teacher teaches, it affects Him. He's affected by the lesson. He prepares for it. He thinks about it. He's engaged. It affects him tremendously. Before, during, and after. The artist is affected by his art. Before, during, and after. God is not affected by creation. He's so beyond creation. It's almost meaningless. It's it's, it's as if nothing happened. What, 
what energy does God have to expend? It's like the king. The king has to say, build a house, and he moves on to other things, and then the house gets built. But how much energy did the king invest in building that house? He said three words, build a house, end of story. How, how much did he engage him? How much did he invest of himself? Three words, that's it. And then he moved on. They're sweating away, and he's sleeping in his royal bed, <laughs> thinking about other things. So creation does not, God doesn't invest himself, his essence. Creation doesn't engage him, doesn't occupy and that's, and that's what we explain. After the Shema, we say, Atahu, you are the same one, just like you were alone before you created the world. Nothing changed. You are alone after you created the world. Nothing changed. God is not affected by creation. Doesn't engage Him, doesn't invest Himself in it, and He remains totally unaffected by creation. For this world, and likewise all the supernal worlds, do not affect any change in His unity by their having been created out of a state of nothingness. Just as God was one alone, single and unique, before they were created, so is he one alone, single and unique, after he created them. He's saying not only is God one, but he's saying God is yachid. God is the only one, exclusive. It's one thing to say one. One could be followed by two. It could be a second one. But yachid means exclusive, the only one. God is the only thing that exists. Nothing else exists besides God. How can it be so? How can it be so? What of all the creatures that exist besides him? Yet it is so because all is as not beside him, as if absolutely non-existent. Creation comes about through God's speech. God spoke and the world came into being. By Yoimer Lakim, God says the world should sprout trees, grass, and the world sprouted. So God spoke and the world came to being. And not only God spoke in the past tense, but God speaks in the present tense. God is constantly speaking. If God would cease to speak, if God would stop to speak, the world would cease to exist. Because the world on its own is a non-entity. The world has no existence. It's not like the artist. When the artist takes something that exists, takes clay or takes material that exists, and he shapes it, he defines it, sculptures it, plays with it. This entity had an existence on its own before the artist came along. All the artist did was he changed the shape, shaped it, defined it, made, did something artistic and beautiful, but he can walk away from it. Why could he walk away from it? Because the entity has an existence of its own. It stands on its own two feet. It existed before the artist came along. And it continues to exist. All the artist did was he changed the shape and the form. It's all he changes the form, but not, not the substance, the essence. The thing has an existence on its own. It stands on its own two feet. But when God created the world, everything in this world, God created both heaven and earth, God created out of nothing. And therefore it has no existence of its own has no right of being, has nothing. And it can't stand on its own two feet. Because God has to constantly recreate. God has to constantly recreate. The miracle of creation is to constantly create something from nothing. To transform energy into matter is a constant, constant miracle. 
Like the modern physicist tells you, everything that exists is really atoms, which is pure energy that is transforming itself as we speak. This very moment, the you, I, the chair we're speaking, the cup of water, everything is really, it's energy. That's all it is. Matter is energy. It's energy transforming, it's being transformed into matter. But it's a miracle. It's nothing short of a miracle. And there has to be this powerful force to constantly urge this miracle, to, to create this miracle. Otherwise, it would cease to exist. Everything would revert back to pure energy and everything would revert back to, to nothingness. So the world would simply cease to exist. So there has to be this constant divine energy, which is what we call God's speech. God speaks and He orders everything into existence. So His speech, God's power of speech, is constantly creating everything that's within everything. God's speech is, is creating the earth and giving it the power to constantly regenerate. And God's speech is creating the heaven and everything that exists down to the tiniest detail, the flower, the leaf, everything is constantly being created down to every blade of grass. The amoeba, the atom, everything is constantly being created through the divine energy, through the divine speech. Therefore, if the divine energy would cease, everything would revert back to nothingness. So nothing really exists on its own. On its own right. It's not like anything has an independent existence. On its own, we're, at, we're nothing. We're really nothing. It's a divine energy that's constantly bringing us into existence. To use a human analogy. You throw a ball up in the air. Right? The ball by nature. It follows gravity and the ball rests. How do you take a ball to go against the force of gravity? You have to have an energy, a strength to go against its nature and to throw it up in the air, to fly in the air. When that energy ceases, what happens? The ball reverts back to nature. Falls right back down to earth. So what happens when the ball is flying in the air? Has the ball become a flying object? Did the ball, has the ball changed and been transformed into a flying object? No. The ball is a stationary object. It's the energy that's pushing the ball. Not the ball that became a flying object has been changed, has changed. The ball hasn't changed. The ball is still. The rock is still. It doesn't move. It's an unmovable object. It doesn't move. It doesn't budge. But you have this force, this energy that's pushing it. So it's the energy that's flying. It's the energy that's pushing the ball. But the ball itself remains, even while it's flying, it remains, it's really on its own, it's a stationary arm. So the same thing is with existence itself. When God creates the world and bring everything into, brings everything into existence through His speech, God spoke and the world came into being, right in the beginning of the Torah. That's divine energy that's creating everything, transforming energy into matter, bringing everything into existence. So what happens? Even after, even while it exists, just like the flying ball. Has the ball been changed and become a flying ball? The ball suddenly flies? No, the ball doesn't fly. The ball is stationary. There's a force that's pushing. So when God speaks and brings something into existence, does that mean that now it has an existence? Now we exist? No. We inherently, we don't exist. We have no independent existence. We can't re- for one moment, we can't be without the divine energy constantly creating us. If the divine energy would cease, we would in one instant disappear, we cease to exist, we don't exist, we have no existence. So even while we do exist, even when God is speaking and creating us and bringing us into existence, it's not we that exist. We don't have any independent existence. We don't have any real existence, any substantial existence. What exists within us? It's the divine energy, that's all we are. 
We're nothing other than the divine energy that's constantly bringing us into existence, that's speaking, communicating, and bringing us into existence. So even when we exist, we don't really exist. So on a basic, on a simple level, that's how the Alter Rebbe explained in the second part of Tanya, which we learned, that the world, when we say that God is the only thing that exists, that we don't exist, it's because we don't really have existence. We don't have any independent existence. The artist can walk away from his artwork because the artwork existed before. He just changed the shape and the form. But the world didn't exist before. The world has no existence. There's no independent, no existence, no inherent existence. Inherently, innately, we simply don't exist. Our only existence is because at this very moment there's a divine force, an energy that's constantly within us, that's constantly forcing us and bringing us into existence, transforming energy into matter, constantly bringing us into existence. So therefore, what, what are we? Even when we exist this moment, who are we? What are we? Is this for real? Are we, are we really, do we really exist? No. Just like the ball. Has the ball become a flying ball? No. The ball remains stationary. It's the energy that's pushing the ball. So what are we really? Our whole existence is nothing other than, than the divine energy. So there is nothing else but God. There is no real existence but God. There is nothing besides God. This is what the Torah means. Ein, oin, milvade. There's no other existence besides God. In other words, there's no independent existence. Without God, there's nothing. Angels, universes, higher levels of consciousness, material, spiritual, human beings, this whole commotion that we call life and world, and existence, and being, even while we exist. It's not that we're an illusion, God forbid. It's not an illusion. But we don't have any independent existence. Our entire existence is nothing other than the divine energy that's constantly creating us and bringing us into existence. So our very substance is God. Our very being is God. There is nothing else but God, in a real sense. Because God is the only independent being, the only independent existence. We cannot, indep- we cannot exist independently. For one split second. We couldn't stand on our own for one split second. So what does that mean if you can't stand on your own for one split second? That means even when you exist, what are you? No, you, you, you don't really exist. It's the force within you. That's who you are. So even when we exist, it's not really that we've become transformed and now we exist and now we're real. We're nothing other, for really, we're nothing other than the divine energy that's constantly bringing us into God's creative energy, God's speech. That's bringing us into existence. That's, that's the only thing that really is. But. But. Al-Tarebi here goes a lot deeper than that. Because, yes, while it's true that there is a concept of Ein Oid Movade, that there's nothing other than God, that nothing exists independently besides God. Ein oid, if you know Hebrew, ein oid, there's nothing, milvadoi, there's nothing besides Him. In other words, there's no independent being that could exist outside of God, besides God, even for one moment. Therefore, our existence is not really existence, even when we exist, it's the energy within us that's really, that's bringing us into existence, that's really what we're all about. Okay, so true. There's no independent existence besides God. But we are a dependent existence. We're not an independent existence. But we are a dependent existence. Like light of the sun. Could the light of the sun exist without the sun? What happens if you disconnect the light of the sun from the sun? There's no light. There's no light. Light, you can't bottle the light and sell it. (laughs) 
If the light is not connected to its source, it ceases to exist. If the electricity is not connected to the generator to its source, it ceases to exist. Light, energy, has to be connected to its source. Otherwise, it ceases to exist. It's a dependent entity. It's not an independent entity. It senses its source, it feels its source, it knows without its source it's nothing. Everything it has comes from its source. So it's, a, so it's not an independent reality. So we can understand that in truth, all of existence, all of creation is really a dependent reality. We're constantly connected to our source. We're dependent on our source. We're nothing other than the source. So we're not an independent reality. There's nothing else besides God that's independent. But dependent? Maybe there is something besides God. There's God and there's us. We are dependent reality. There's the sun and there's a light outside the sun. There's God and there's us. Yes, we're not really existing. Our whole existence is really the divine energy within us. Yes, yeah, so fine. So we're not an independent existence. So, but we are a dependent existence. So before creation, there was no flying ball. Now you have a flying ball as well. Now you have an existence that's not really an existence, but there is an end. There is something. Something happened before God was alone, and now He created an exi- a dependent existence, a dependent entity. But how can you say that God is Yachid? Not that God is one, but God is exclusive. Atahu, you are alone just like before you created the world, and you were alone after you created the world. Even while, even now, this moment, God is alone. There's nothing else besides God. This doesn't make sense. How do you explain that? What do you mean there's nothing besides God? God created the world, and He spoke, and it came into being. And it's the divine energy that's creating us and bringing us into existence. Not an independent existence, but a, but a dependent existence. How can you say nothing exists but God? Absolutely nothing exists. God is absolutely alone. Nothing changed. God was absolutely alone before He created the world. At this very moment, God is absolutely alone. How do we make sense of that? That's what He's going to explain here. Remember, you were saying a few different times over the months that we're waiting for Mashiach. We get ten of us doing kind of everything right as much as possible. So. Who are the ten people? Aren't we existing to do the right thing? To do? Yes, yes. The thirty-six. No, you mean the thirty-six hidden tzaddikim? Uh, okay, we'll, we'll we'll get to that. Don't don't worry. This world is not an illusion. Life is very real. <laughs> Life is very real. It's it's the ego, the egotism that's an illusion. Uh, but the the uh, life is life is very real and. Uh, First, to understand that, first you have to appreciate, you have to understand the idea that nothing exists besides God. There really is nothing, no existence. Not only there is no independent existence besides God, which is what he explained in the second part of the Tanya, here he's explaining something much deeper. That there is no existence, period. Ein oid. Not only ein oid movade, not only is there no existence independent of God, but outside of God, besides God, independent of God, but ein oid, there is nothing else. Nothing else exists besides God. We have to understand. How do you explain it? What do you mean nothing else exists besides God? God created us through His energy, through His divine speech. He's constantly creating us. If He creates us, so He's bringing us into existence. A dependent existence, but existence nonetheless. Light of the sun. Still connected to the sun, to the source, but still there's a sun and there's light. How can you say that all there is is a, is, is a sun? Nothing else really exists. How can you say that? That's what He's going to explain here. 
in this chapter. For the coming into being of all the upper and lower worlds out of nothingness and their life and their existence, that is, that force which sustains them so that they do not revert to nothingness and naught as they were before they were created, for unlike the product of a human craftsman, which, if left undisturbed, will remain in exactly the same state and shape as it was when it left the hands of the craftsman, the continued existence of creation is dependent on the constant renewal of the creative power. Were this power to cease, all of creation would revert to nothingness. This force which animates and sustains the existence of all creation is nothing other than the word of God and the breath of his mouth that is clothed in these worlds. Well, we learned in the second part of the Tanya, we learned how God's creative energy, the Devar Hashem, God's speech, God spoke and it came into being. So the speech itself creates everything and animates everything and sustains everything. So that speech is constantly speaking and creating everything that exists. Everything has the breath of God within it. Everything has God's speech that's constantly creating and bringing, sustaining and creating everything, bringing into existence. But now he's going to discuss the relationship of God's speech to God himself. Using the analogy of a human being. What's the relationship of speech in relationship to a human being? What does, when the Torah says God speaks, obviously God doesn't have a mouth. We don't mean in the physical sense. Why does the Torah use the analogy of speaking? Because it's a parable from a human, from a human understanding. We'll understand from a human being. Just like when a person speaks. So when the Torah tells us that God creates the world with ten words, with ten utterances, the Torah is giving us an analogy, just like a human being. When a human being speaks, when you say... Imagine you're saying ten words. What significance do these ten words have in comparison to you, the person who's speaking these ten words? Are you going to call a press conference? Stop, stop the presses. Head, 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 headline story. The person spoke ten words. Earth-shattering event. What happened? You spoke ten words. What, what, are, what are ten words? What happens when a person speaks? Speech is so superficial to the person. And you can speak an infinite amount of words. If you were to live long enough. Some people it seems like they do. <laughs> There's no limit in your soul to the amount of words you can speak. We have the concept of reincarnation. Maybe you st- because you live a limited life. So you... Stop speaking. But reincarnation, when the same soul is reincarnated in another body, it can speak and speak and speak, and then on and on and on. So how is it possible for a finite soul to have the ability to speak infinite amount of words? It's like a bank account that's infinite. It just keeps on giving. No stop. Just keeps on, the ATM machine just keeps on words. Words keep on coming out, infinite. How is it possible? The answer is because it's superficial. It means nothing to the soul. It's not like, take for example, you take a cup of water. There's a reservoir of water. There's an ocean. You take a, take a cup of water out of the ocean. Of course, you won't notice it. It's just a little cup of water. But ultimately, the ocean is made up of, of a certain amount of water. Every cup of water you take out of the reservoir, you're taking a piece of the reservoir you're taking out. You're removing a piece of the reservoir out, out of the reservoir. So the reservoir has lost a cup of water. If Bill Gates 
takes out one dollar bill from the ATM. Okay, it's like a drop in the ocean. I'm sure he won't notice it. But eventually, if you stand there for many years, every minute, constantly taking out a dollar bill, eventually he's going to start, start depleting his account because ultimately it's 68 billion is made up of, of dollar bills. So it's a drop in the ocean, but it's, you're taking something of the substance itself and you're removing it. When you speak, however, it's not like the soul has a certain amount of words stored in your soul. And every time you're, you're speaking, it's like an ATM machine, you're taking, make no withdrawal, and you're giving a piece of your soul. You're not giving a piece of your soul. You're not giving anything of your soul. It's so superficial to the person. Why? Because speech, speech doesn't add anything to the person. The person doesn't need speech. It's like the sun. You think it makes a difference to the sun if it shines, if it doesn't shine. If it's a nice day and the sun is shining. That means the sun, the sun is hotter. There's no difference. So if it's a dark day and it's cloudy, or it's in those parts of the world where it's dark for dark for six months, if let's say it wouldn't shine, it would stop shining. It doesn't make any difference. The sun doesn't matter. The core, the essence of the sun, it really doesn't make any difference. It doesn't add anything to the sun. It doesn't detract. It does shine. It doesn't shine because it's totally superficial to the sun. It doesn't. It's not like the sun has to invest itself in giving out light. It's not like when you speak, you're investing yourself. You're not. You don't need speech. For yourself, you need speech. You don't need speech. Speech is only superficial, external, for the other person. Robinson Crusoe, we have talked to. Speech is for the other person. You want to communicate, you want to speak to the other person. The other person wants to know what's going on inside your mind. If there's anything going on, wants to know what's going on in your heart, wants to know, wants to know what's going on inside. So you communicate, so you speak. So speech is very superficial. Reminds me of the story there. Someone comes to the rabbi, he says, Rabbi, you know, I speak to have a big problem. I speak to myself. The rabbi said, Listen, uh, it's not the worst thing in the world. Everyone occasionally speaks to themselves. Even I sometimes catch myself speaking to myself. He says, Rabbi, you don't understand. I'm such a nudnik. <laughs> but the speech is for the other person, it's not for yourself. So, so for the person itself, it's totally superficial to the person. And therefore, it's inexhaustible. It, it's like, it's not, not like water off your back. It's like the light of the sun. It means nothing. You don't invest yourself in the speech. And yet, even within speech, a person could speak infinite amount of words. So how significant is it that you spoke ten words? Even in comparison to your speech, your ability to speak. It's not an event. In your lifetime, you speak millions of words. Billions, zillions. What are ten words? It's absolutely meaningless. Meaningless. And then what are words in comparison to thought? Thought is qualitatively different, higher than speech. Not every thought can be put into speech. Every, it takes you five minutes to think. It takes you a half hour to express it. Thought is much more internal, much more intimate. No one knows what you're thinking. You can tell that a person is lost in thought, but I have no idea what they're thinking. Speech is external. Speech is you communicate to someone outside of you. That's why a person could stop speaking. Some people could, but you can't stop thinking. Because thought is much more intimate. Thought is connected to your soul. Just like your soul never stops, you can't stop thinking. Even when you sleep, you're dreaming, you're thinking. So thought is qualitatively different than speech. And is the source of speech. When you speak, you speak words that you thought of, that you prepared, that you thought of, and then you, while you speak, 
You're thinking about what you're speaking. So in comparison to thought, what are ten words in comparison to thought? Nothing. But even thought is really a form of communication, a form of speech. You're speaking to yourself. You speak to yourself or you speak to others. But then if you go deeper, what is thought in comparison, what is speech in comparison, what is thought in comparison to the source of thought and speech? What's the source of thought and speech? The emotion. The intellect. No one loves in French or in English or in Russian. And raw intellect raw concepts transcend language that's why the, the Russian communist scientist had a perfect rapport with his capitalist counterpart because it transcends culture altogether what culture when culture it's pure concepts pure intellect concepts ideas philosophy there's no, there's no transcends all language and words so innate intelligence raw concepts raw understanding raw emotion totally transcends language all the language in the world can't adequately describe a real genuine emotion so what are ten words in comparison to the source of intellect to the, to the source of words which is the emotion to the source of emotion which is intellect and then you can go deeper the subconscious which totally transcends words and language altogether so the question is what are these ten words in comparison to the person who spoke these words who are behind these words there's a thought behind this speech. There's an emotion behind this thought. There's an intellectual understanding behind this emotion. There's the subconscious. There's the soul. There's the person. Have we even begun to scratch the surface of who the person is? Has the person exhausted himself in this speech? Has he invested himself in this speech? What exactly has this person invested in this speech? Nothing. It's an insignificant event. It's an absolutely, inherently insignificant event not that it engages the person that it occupies the person the person has given the substance of given of himself what is he given of himself? nothing and that's what the Torah means God created the world with his ten utterances what did God invest in creation? What did, of course God spoke and the world came into being but it's not that it occupied him it's almost like you said earlier it almost like it happened on its, it almost like it happened automatically what does God invest? he spoke ten words the king said let there be a house and he walked away what the does it engage him? Does it occupy him? Does he invest himself in it? It doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of his speech. It doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of his thought. It doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of his emotion. It doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of his intellect. It doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of his subconscious, of his core, of his essence. So the king remains a total mystery. Totally transcendent. That's what the Torah means. God created the world. The world didn't add anything to God. It means nothing to God. It didn't add anything. Not like there was God, and now there's a God and there's a world. What is the world? It's God's speech. Where is God's speech? Within God. When within God, it doesn't add anything to God. It means nothing to God. It's a non-event. It's a non-entity. It's insignificant. So this whole world, this whole tumult of life and the world and the whole bureaucracy of the universe, spiritual, physical, higher levels of consciousness, angels, meditation, spirituality, religion, mysticism, this whole tumult. To God, it's a non-event. It's almost as if it never happened. What difference is it? It's like total insignificant. Totally insignificant. 
God totally transcends. Nothing changed. Just like God was alone before He created the world, God is alone after Christ. Nothing changed. He's alone. He existed alone, and now He exists alone. All there is is God. Nothing else exists. Nothing changed. It's inherently a non-entity. Nothing happened. Even the act of speaking is a non-entity. Not only that the world is a non-entity that we don't really exist because we're dependent existence. The act of God speaking and bringing into the existence within God, it's a non-entity, it's a non-event. Just like when a human being speaks and he says ten words, it's a non-event, it's a non-entity. It's not memorable, who cares, what difference does it make? How much more so multiply it infinite times that this entire universe, heaven and earth, Religion, mysticism, spirituality, art, music, this whole entire universe is a non-entity, it's a non-event. It's inherently insignificant. So God is alone. God is one. There's only one existence. Nothing else exists. Nothing else. Nothing else happened. Nothing, else. Nothing changed. Nothing was added. Nothing happened. It's a non-event. It's a non-entity. So where does that leave us? just in a nutshell and then we'll stop there and continue next week this is the point that he's trying to make from a Jewish point of view there is an abyss there's an absolute abyss a chasm between us and God an unbridgeable chasm that cannot be bridged not by religion and not by mysticism and not by meditation and not by higher levels of consciousness, not by art and not by music and not by beauty. There's nothing that we can do to get one iota closer to God. There's only one way we can get closer to God. God throws us a line. God chooses to connect with us. By giving us the Ten Commandments, Revelation, the Torah and the Mitzvah, God revealed Himself to us and He gave us a way for us to connect with Him. And that is the only way. And that is why for a Jew to be disconnected from God, to violate one of the mitzvot, not to violate one of the 365 don'ts, or not to do one of the 248 active mitzvot, it leads us to the abyss to absolute nothingness. Because without God, without His Torah, without His mitzvot, there's absolutely nothing. And that's why for a Jew, a Jew is ready to sacrifice his life, just like a Jew is ready to sacrifice his life, not to worship idols. A Jew is really ready to sacrifice his life to do Torah and mitzvot, to live a Jewish life, not to die for God, but to live a godly life, to live a Jewish life, in our daily life, on a daily basis in thought, speech, and action, 24-7, to lead a Jewish life, to follow the Jewish way of life, to learn the Torah, to do the mitzvah, day in, day out, 24-7. Because this is, our, this is reality. There is no other reality. There is no other reality. The moment we unplug from God, it could be angels, higher level of consciousness, it's an abyss. There's nothing. It's nothing. It's meaningless. It's insignificant. It has absolutely no value. And a Jew knows it in his kishkes every fiber of his being and every bone in his body that there's only one reality and that's the reality of God that's the reality of Torah and mitzvot the reality of the code of Jewish law the reality of Jewish life 
that has sustained the Jewish people miraculously for 3,800 years. There is no other way. There is nothing else. Nothing else exists. It's not only a lifeline. Without this, there's nothing. Without this, we're lost. We're reduced to absolute nothingness. Meaninglessness and nothingness. And that's not an option for a Jew. To unplug, to be disconnected, it's not an option. 